Welcome to Nature and Nurture podcast, produced by Dr. Hongmei Li Byerley. I'm Christopher Juberg. Our podcast is about the fascinating science behind our nature and our environment, especially social organisms and small critters, such as bees, wasps, ants, and termites. Even though they are tiny insects, their social life and colony dynamics can be as complex as human society. In this podcast, we will share incredible stories from the outstanding scientists around the world who are studying social insects every day. Through the discoveries of new genes, unique behavior, and the environment that makes life possible, we are one step closer to unraveling the mysteries of Mother Nature. Please subscribe for our new episodes on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Music Play. Please support us on Patreon.com. You will find our campaign page by searching Nature and Nurture. Listeners supporting our production by pledging $1 per episode will receive special newsletters, and listeners who pledge $5 per episode will receive a 3D B-Brain in the mail. Feel free to contact us at naturenurturepodcast at gmail.com. Hi, Professor Rodolph Rango. It's really nice to meet you, and thank you so much for your time to come to our podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Good afternoon. It's very exciting, and um, this is certainly a very uh, timely, relevant, and interesting topic to discuss. So let me just introduce Professor Rodolph Rango briefly. So he's an associate professor at the Department of Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Sciences of NC State University, down the street from my building. <laughs> And he studies the biology and genetics of CRISPR-Cas9 immune systems in bacteria using microbiology, molecular biology, and genomic tools. So his paper titled CRISPR provides acquired resistance against viruses in uh, prokaryotes. And science has been cited 1,946 times since 2007. He has published many papers. So far, 107 papers and five book chapters with total 12,000, almost 13,000 citations. And he's a very high-level, outstanding scientist. In the year of 2016, I think he's, he had a very uh, fruitful and harvest year with a lot of awards, including the Canada um, Gardner International Award, right? The uh, Warren Alpert Foundation Prize, the um, NC State um, University Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So your background and your experience in science is really uh, fascinating and it's really intriguing. So I just have a few questions to ask you today. And, and first, uh, let's start from the beginning, beginning of your life and just wonder how you got attracted and draw into doing science. It's a very good question. So, so actually, uh, you know, there are many paths that can lead to being a scientist, to being a scientist, be it at the bench, at the university, in the industry, whatever it is. There's many, many different ways to, to be a scientist, and there's many different ways to get to being a scientist. Mm-hmm. There's many different paths. And ironically enough, I have a very non-canonical path Mm -hmm. because nobody in my family is a scientist. So my parents aren't scientists. My siblings are not scientists. They're all more like business and all that stuff. And maybe I'm a contrarian by by definition. Um, 
But I think, you know, as far back as I can remember, I always liked science. I liked reading about science. I liked learning about science. Uh-huh. You know, I liked so it's scientific more born topics. that way. Yeah, I think it was, it was, you know, maybe it's more nature than nurture. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think I always, I always had the intrigue of science. I like learning and hearing about science and reading about science. And, and I think, you know, fairly early in my academic exposure, you know, when I was a teenager, probably 11 or 12, maybe 13, who knows. Yeah, did you do a um, science project? I did not do a science project, but I went to a, a Nobel lecture <gasps> uh, uh, in France. In France. And, and I heard, it was a Nobel in physics, and I heard this gentleman, Pierre-Gilles de Jeanne, gave a talk, and I thought it was fantastic. I was like, you know, it was like blowing my mind. It was like, this is, you know, he could make very simple things sound very complicated for me at the time. And then he could make things that sounded crazy complicated, very simple and relatable to me. So yeah. I think that was, that was a, like a turning point, I think, uh-huh. in my interest in science. Um, and then, you know, it took years after that to eventually go to college and, and I got a degree in chemistry and I thought organic chemistry was awesome, but there was no job in organic chemistry. <laughs> so then I went to engineering and got a master's in engineering and then I got a master's in food science and that's what I heard about, you know, microbes and genetics and DNA and biochemistry and, you know, all the, the living part uh-huh. of the scientific world of biology. Um, and then eventually, you know, genetics is what caught my attention. And then eventually did a PhD in, in genomics, in functional genomics here at NC State. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that really hooked me into trying to, you know, understand how DNA works, mm-hmm. you know, the, the forces driving the central dogma of biology, and then, and then the interplay between genetic content and the environment. That was always kind of a mysterious biological phenomenon to me. And understanding, you know, genetics and genomics and transcriptomics and metabolomics and how all those things fit together to explain a biological phenomenon or a behavior um, was, you know, it it never ceases to excite me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think that that's, so it's a very non-canonical path, lots Mm. of degrees, lots of institutions, lots of different interests over time. I see. But there was always this common thread of trying to understand kind of how the world works connect them together. Yeah. and connecting the dots together, yeah. absolutely. So if you look at the world as like a maze or a puzzle, you know, can you, can you have a common thread to tell the patterns of what's happening in biology? Mm-hmm. That, that was always, you know, a curiosity I had. Um, and then trying to put different lenses on the world that you look at. Yeah. Using chemistry or biochemistry or genetics or genomics or functional genomics or even mathematics and modeling and others, bioinformatics nowadays, and then, you know, try to tell or explain what's happening. And that was that was always cool to me, I think as far back as I can remember, um, and then probably as long as I'm going to live. I see. So from your, ba- from your experience um, looking back, you actually have an a integrative experience from the industries and private sector as well as in academia. So do you think that both experience in, in both different kind of settings can actually benefit your career um, a lot? Or is that a good combination? So yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a great, great combination because, again, you know, there's, there's many different hats that scientists can wear. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can wear a lab coat and be a researcher. 
you know, you can wear, you know, like a, a microphone and be a teacher, mm-hmm. you know, a lecturer, mm-hmm. right, at the, at the lecturing you know, front. Um, you can get a, a quill or a pen or, or a keyboard and be a writer, you know, and you can write reviews and historical reviews or... You can write fiction sometimes. Yeah. Artists write fiction. Yeah. And sometimes you can write, you know, data, well, yeah. and essays. Being and being in academia, it's like more than half the job is writing. Oh, I think I think yeah. easily, yeah. yeah. You can writer. write grants too. <laughs> you can write reviews. You can edit papers. There's a lot of different, you know, you know, hats right. that you have within being a writer, and then also you have to be a learner, and you have to be an entrepreneur. So we talk about entrepreneurship to some extent. So mm-hmm. nowadays, faculty is expected to be entrepreneur as much as people in industry, mm-hmm. and then. Last but not least, you have to be a coach and administrator. So I think those hats you're going to wear as a scientist almost no matter where you work, whether you work in industry, you work in academia, you work in government, mm-hmm. for-profit or not-for-profit, you know, you're going to have a, a, a different combination of those various hats. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like to call them hats is because some hats fit better than others. I see. So some hats fit naturally. It's mm-hmm. the nature part of yours. So people who are lab rats are born lab rats. They're going to be lab rats forever. You can't get them out of the lab, and they love to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are great writers, they're going to wear that hat all the time, maybe 50% yeah. of the time or more. They love to write. People yeah. who are speakers, I know people who give CRISPR talks every week. Every week. And they love to give different talks all the time to different audiences, different questions, different issues, different takes, different opinions, different environments, different audiences. So I think, you know, th- those are, are different hats. And some you have to wear, n- no matter what, <coughs> right? And then others fit better than some than others. So so I think, you know, I have a lot of different hats that make me an arguably successful scientist. And those hats work whether I'm in industry or right. academia or yeah. government. And it doesn't really matter. So now, you know, which hat you wear more can define, you know, which path you take uh-huh. or, or which profession you may be better suited for. Like being a teacher or being a good coach is not trivial. Something you have to have a calling for, a yearning to do, you know, the, the desire to teach other people yeah. and grow and develop other people. And that's why some professors are great. Yeah. Um, so when you first started at DuPont, company, um, were you thinking of doing solid science uh, for I mean, a couple was, of years? I was a lab there? rat. I was oh, a lab rat. I spent most of my time at the bench. I was doing experiments. You know, it was a direct continuation of what I did when I did my PhD. You know, you spend your time doing experiments and doing science. Uh-huh. Core science, hard science, basic science, discovery science. That's what led to the 2007 paper you mentioned. So it was really, you know, kind of doing a postdoc in industry. That's mm-hmm. what it felt like. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, was, so did you feel like you do have a certain um, freedom? To there was some, some degrees of freedom. Topic? Yeah. So I think, you know, I mean, you know, CRISPR. It was yeah. Very so you go into the CRISPR, the CRISPR topic by your own interest? Yeah, so, or? so CRISPR, so I mean, I had worked a little bit on CRISPR when I was in academia before I went to, to DuPont. I see. Uh, so we had come across CRISPRs when you sequence genomes of bacteria, they are there. So we had published a paper on, you know, there was a CRISPR figure I see. in there. I had sequenced genomes and so, seen CRISPRs, and they weren't called CRISPRs at the time. We called them spiders for space interspersed direct repeats. But we had seen those before, but I wasn't really working on CRISPR. But when I went to DuPont, other people were also working on CRISPRs. My colleague and friend, Philippe Horvat, 
I had been looking at CRISPRs for a while. I was intrigued by CRISPRs. I had read about CRISPRs, crispy spiders, as we call them at the time. So, so there was this congruence of interest. And I think sometimes it's how science works, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be the right person, the right place, yeah. the right time, the right project, the right ingredients. Um, and it's one of those stories where there's a collision yes. you know, of, of the science, the people, collaboration. the biology, the collaboration, the teamwork, yes. the, the teamwork, I mean, all the ingredients you need you know, to be very successful. And, and that, that occurred right there. And, you can't plan for it. You can't expect it. You can't demand it. You can't make it happen using a formula. There's no formula for that. There's a little bit of serendipity. Um, now, there are some ingredients that you need, like some freedom to operate, to answer your question. Yeah. So we had some freedom to operate and investigate and try to figure out you know, yeah. what it is that those CRISPR sequences right. were doing biologically. So that leads to my next question. Definitely, um, you're the frontier. Uh, you're running a frontier program in CRISPR technology and, you know, since back in 2007 and, and now and ongoing as well. And can you briefly talk about what is CRISPR-Cas9 technology and give audience uh, uh, some sort of background and, and talk a little bit about kind of currently what's your projects in the lab is, yeah. is working on? Yeah, so I would, I would split that into three, three distinct answers. Right? Okay. Like one is like scientifically, what is CRISPR? And then how was this scientific phenomenon repurposed? That's what people call CRISPR technology. Yeah. Actually, CRISPR technologies with an S. And then we can talk about applications. Yeah. How are people using those technologies to do various things like genome editing? So, so if we start with science, and for me it always starts with the, the basic science. You know, CRISPRs um, are peculiar loci in the genes of you know many bacteria and most archaea that are clustered regularly into spatial boundary micropeats. That's what CRISPR stands for, it's an acronym. And together with CAS genes, and the CAS proteins they encode for CRISPR-associated sequences, they constitute the adaptive immune system in bacteria. Yeah, yeah. the CAS proteins, they're the CRISPR-associated proteins. Exactly, so they're the, the effector proteins that, that, um, that direct the biology of, of what's encoded in the CRISPR. And essentially, they're the adaptive immune system in bacteria, much like antibodies and antigenes that provide specific adaptive immunity against viruses and invasive nucleic acids in bacteria. Mm-hmm. But instead of being protein-protein interaction, it's nucleic acid-nucleic acid interaction. Mm-hmm. And it's DNA encoded, so the CRISPR is a DNA piece, RNA-mediated, kind of like RNAi, RNA guides, DNA targeting mostly. So those guide RNAs direct Cas nucleases that selectively and specifically cut DNA. Yeah, it's like a scissor can cut. Like molecular scalpel, DNA. pair of scissors, axe, knife, chainsaw, <laughs> whatever, whatever uh, um, speaks to you. And essentially, what CRISPR does in nature is cut up the DNA of viruses that infect bacteria. That's the point of adaptive immunity. Now, what people did about four years ago is they repurposed this system that cuts viral DNA in bacteria and reprogrammed it to cut Mm. DNA. Any DNA you want, in any cell you want, any way you want. And essentially, once people repurposed this, 
others took that tool, that CRISPR technology, and transferred it to human cells right. to Which cut human studies. DNA. And when you cut DNA in a human cell, then the cell is going to die. And cells don't like or don't want to die. It's part of their nature and nurture behavior. And essentially, the endogenous DNA repair machinery repairs the DNA break. Right. But it does so imperfectly. It leaves a little scars. So imagine you take a scalpel or a razor and you cut your skin wherever you may shave. And then you're going to have a little bit of a cut. Your body is going to repair that cut mm. but leave a little scar. Mm. That's what happens in genome editing. CRISPR-Cas9 comes in, cuts DNA precisely to a specific location, devised and engineered by the user. Mm-hmm. And then once you cut it, the endogenous DNA repair machinery is going to patch it back together sew it back together, mm-hmm. tape it back together, and then leave a little scar that is essentially a mutation exactly at the location you cut right. your DNA text. And that's why it's called DNA editing, because you're changing the DNA text, the right. DNA sequence, the, sequence. the DNA content, yeah. at the exact location of cleavage. Yeah, but it's okay. a really powerful tool of the mutation part make it functional. Absolutely. Uh, cool. So so CRISPR, so that's one of the urban legends, right? So CRISPR does not do genome editing per se. CRISPR just does the cutting. The endogenous repair machinery does the editing. Um, they sell. That's the editing. And uh, so that's what CRISPR technology is. And then you have applications of that technology to do different things in different kinds of organisms. Uh, for example, to edit DNA. So you can use CRISPR-based technologies to cure bad sequences of DNA, Mm -hmm. to correct bad sequences of DNA associated with disease, and Mm -hmm. that's called gene therapy. Mm -hmm. So you correct the sequence of a broken gene. Right. And then you can do that with things like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or other genetically characterized diseases, and you correct the incorrect typo, Mm -hmm. the typographic error into your DNA text, and then repair this to the right sequence. Mm -hmm. But you can use this to change DNA, you know, any way you want, any sequence you want in any cell you want. You Mm -hmm. can change DNA in a human, you can change DNA in a plant, in an animal, Mm -hmm. in a bacterium, Mm -hmm. in algae, in yeast, and, and almost anything you can think of. Yeah. And that's the power, and that's the drive behind the democratization of CRISPR technologies. Is that it holds tremendous potential to alter the DNA easily, quickly, affordably, efficiently, multiplexibly, specifically, and easily, uh, um, any way you want, anywhere you want, mm-hmm. almost anyhow you want. So I think your lab is focused on the bacteria part still. Yeah, we are. So, so I've always been a, I've always been a microbiologist, right? So I like like looking at things in microscope and you know small DNA and whatnot in bacteria, which are convenient because they grow so fast. They're so easy to grow. It's much easier to grow a bacterium, you know, than an animal, let alone a human, obviously. Um, so they're fast, they're not so fastidious, you know, I to feed them a lot, right? They're well-behaved, they don't escape or, you know, do bad things. The ones we work on do not. Um, and, and it's very convenient, very easy to manipulate, more simple. 
So unicellular mm-hmm. organisms, smaller right. genomes, you know, uh, uh, more predictable behavior to some extent. But that's how the science is started. You work so on the simple system, then you move into a, a further, a little bit more complicated system, and then move to mammal. You know, Absolutely. More so, so this is what I call the, the layers of complexity. Mm-hmm. So when you when you tackle a, or a problem or a challenge, or address a grand challenge, you know, you start easy. Mm-hmm. Right, we're not going to start by curing schizophrenia or dementia, genetically, you know, <laughs> in aging humans. I mean, you don't start with that. Mm-hmm. You start saying, "Can we change, you know, one letter in the small genome of an easy-to-grow more microorganism in the lab?" Mm-hmm. And you start there. So, mm-hmm. so we are on that spectrum in the science, where you know it's easier, uh, but it's not trivial. Uh, it is more straightforward and accessible and affordable. Uh, but we can only take it so far. This is why, you know, science is the combination mm-hmm. of thousands of people in thousands of labs doing a lot of things over extended periods of time. So eventually, mm-hmm. you can do things like cure genetic disease. Yeah. So we're not going to do that, but we are part of that equation, Basic. so to speak, mm-hmm. by, you know, making discoveries that enable us to see how this works, what tools come in, how to do it, how to improve it, how to optimize it, how to develop it, and then eventually somebody else is going to use this and implement that, not in bacteria like we do, but in humans mm-hmm. to do other things, yeah. or in cows or right. chickens or pigs or algae right. and you know, whatever. Apply to, yeah, a lot of different organisms. Mm-hmm. So I think CRISPR technologies have a really huge, gigantic potential to influence um, our life. So, what are your your thoughts on on kind of speculate the imagine the pictures after ten years of we work on CRISPR Cas9 and what do you think the more of the breakthrough we can have? So, so I've had the great luxury of working on CRISPR for twelve years, uh-huh. right? So, like two thousand and five, you know, more or less, right. and then up to twenty seventeen right now. So. So, so let's say a little bit more than one decade. Actually, next month will be the, the decade anniversary the of our first paper. Oh, congratulations. First big paper. So it's exciting, but it's also like scary to see how fast time goes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 10 years ago, nobody had a clue mm. of how far and how, how far the field would go and how fast we would get there. And I think trying to, to predict or forecast today what's going to happen in 10 years it's hard. Is, is impossible. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, <laughs> but it's very difficult. So we have to keep that in mind. And, I, and I've said before, arguably, I think imagination is the biggest limiting factor in our ability to exploit and harness CRISPR-Cas technologies because it's so powerful you can almost do anything you want with it. Um, so I think if we forecast the next 10 years, I think it's fair to say within 10 years we will see tangible therapies being developed and have clinical success. I think actually that may be less than five years away. Hmm. I think but in yeah, less than five years, really fast. it's very, very fast. Because if you say genome editing using CRISPR in humans mm-hmm. comes back from 2013, mm-hmm. Bong Zhang and George Church, the first two pioneers doing this at MIT and Harvard respectively, um, you know, it's, it's four-year-old technology right now. Hmm. And within 
within three to five years, it's going to go therapeutic all the way. Yeah. That's less than 10 years. And they've years. already kind of started on clinical they are. testing. So that's, that's speed of light mm -hmm. in, in scientific scales. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very impressive. Yeah. That's very exciting. And so on the other side, besides human, we also have a lot of ecological settings and all the other... Yeah, wildlife so, and so, so this is where so I'm for example in. if we do CRISPR Cas9 mosquitoes and sent to the field. Yeah. So if we look so if we look beyond humans, so I think beyond, you know, I mean human obviously is, you know, I would say first and foremost. Right. Especially for therapeutic potential. Um, but outside of human there there's other domains that are very big, very impactful. Yeah. But CRISPR is gonna make major contributions in the short term. Again, forget about ten years, I think within five years. And those fields are agriculture. And I mean, I mean agriculture, I mean both like plants mm. and, and animals, animals, animal breeding. So mm -hmm. we already see, you know, things like corn, soy, cotton, rice, and all the other, you know, plants of interest to the scientific and commercial worlds being easily edited using CRISPR. So waxy corn, white button mushroom, you know, two very good examples that are rather popular thus far. So it's happening. I think all big ag is invested and investing, you know, in CRISPR technologies to the next generation breeding other plants. Mm -hmm. And it's going to accelerate the process, enhance and empower scientists to do what they want to do easier, better, mm -hmm. and faster. Mm -hmm. um, but but that's, that's very much an acceleration of what's already going on. So it's mm -hmm. not, it's, it's enhancing and disruptive, but it's not revolutionary, arguably, because this is already something that people did before. Now, in animals, it's a little bit more tricky, uh, uh, sometimes more, more time-consuming, more challenging technologically. Yeah, breeding. But we're there. But breeding time. animals, we're getting there. So that's where CRISPR is making an even bigger impact because it's enhancing, accelerating, democratizing, facilitating, any combination thereof, you know, the, the, the pace and scale at which hmm. we can do breeding, hmm. next-generation breeding in animals. Mm -hmm. And when you yeah. look at the dire need that we have to feed, you know, the human population, a very quickly growing human population, uh, and that, that may afford us new opportunities and open new avenues to, uh, to assess or solve the problems that are pending. Mm -hmm. So I like I that see. part for animals and big yeah. commercial animals. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, things like gene drives, you mentioned mosquitoes, you know, so you can, you can do gene drives. Again, CRISPR didn't invent gene drives, like it didn't invent genome editing. It just enhanced it and facilitated it and democratized it. Um, so I think we're going to see, you know, the, the gene drive community leverage CRISPR to make it, you know, faster, cheaper, more affordable, more powerful. But it also, you know, brings up all the concerns that are pre-existing about right biological containment, right. environmental safety. release, safety, impact on e ecosystems, impact on regulations. Mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes when I talk about this, I use the image of the highway of science. Mm. And think of CRISPR A speed limit. as the very edge mm. of the highway, at the mm. edge of the road, mm -hmm. right? And people are there. The CRISPR people are at the very tip of the road. And they are actually off-roading. They are there, but they are riding in dirt. There's no road being built, right? Because mm. they're so far at the mm. edge that they're off-roading, they're riding up the road, they're no four-by-four, yeah. 
and they're driving on dirt. Yeah. And when you do that, you know, you don't really know where you're going, right? You can't go as fast. You, know, you still go off the road. You pass the road you can see. Mm. And sometimes you make good decisions, sometimes you make bad decisions. Who knows, right? But I think, you know, the, that's where the scientists are right now. And the challenge is that, you know, you never build the guardrails before you build the road, mm. right? Mm. So the guardrails always come mm. after, after the road is built, right? Right. Like I mean, uh, oftentimes, right? Just it's just, it's an it's an image, so to speak, right? It's metaphor, but in the end, very seldom do we see or imagine the road guardrails being built first, yeah, and then you're going to pave the road and then have people drive. It's just not how it works. So what's interesting in the CRISPR world is that oftentimes we see people expect that those pilots that are head down, full steam ahead, off-roading, should at the same time build the guardrails. And that, I, I'm not sure it's going to work. I'm not sure they have the skills. Hmm. I mean, not that they couldn't do it if they had to, but I don't even know if that's their job sometimes. I think I know, yeah, right? your point. So, yeah. so they should be there, they should participate... They shouldn't go too far off the road. Mm. Right? We should make sure we can still see them and nothing bad happens and mm. don't kill themselves or other people, <laughs> right? They're a hazard to the community. But I think at the same time, you know, the people who build the guardrails are very good at building guardrails. We have moratoriums. Mm -hmm. We have organizations. We have groups. We have processes. We have regulations. Domestic, national, international. Mm -hmm. Federal or state on mm -hmm. our scale, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of organizations whose job it is to make sure that we have guardrails. Yeah. To develop next generation of guardrails. Yeah. To be mindful and keep track of people who are off-roading. Yeah. And making sure that everyone's safe. So I'm very confident. Right. Because in the CRISPR world, we see that people like Jennifer Doudna and a lot of her peers are very actively involved in that dialogue. They're involved. They're present. They talk. And they've invited the right people at the table. Governmental agencies, the public, mm -hmm. the academics, yeah. the business, the industry, the politicians, right. the regulators, the national academies and academies of science, and mm -hmm. you know, very important, critical, opinionated, smart people who should be involved. Yeah, uh, that's so I'm, I'm very confident. And and the other thing that's interesting is that all those issues about gene drives or about ethics or human germline, or GMO and non-GMO, right? None of those are new. Now, CRISPR is changing again the pace and scale at which things are happening, but it's not creating new problems really. It's just making existing problems more important to address right now. Yes. And I think we're seeing that right now, and I'm very confident, I'm very pleased, and I'm very calm. I always say, like, keep calm and crisper on. <laughs> I am very calm and peaceful because I know that a lot of the people who should be involved are involved. A lot of the people who should be asked their opinion have or are being asked their opinion. Um, and, and it's important to do it the right way. Mm -hmm. um, now, we still always, and we'll always have people off-roading that are a little rogue, that go a little too fast. <laughs> you know, that tend to not be as mindful as other people of what they do. But I kind of like that because this is what scientists do. Right. This is who they are. This is how science works. Yes. It's and, more. And this is, you know, being a, an innovator 
You know, yes. you have to explore, you know, to find new paths, you know, blaze new trails. Right. And, and find your way. And this is how you discover things that you don't always know. Because yes. you're off the road and you're going somewhere where, like nobody else wants to go. Yeah. Because it's dark and insecure and there's yeah, no path. You have to be brave, be bold. Yeah. Um, to and go down to exactly. the path nobody else wants That's to That's exactly go. that. So to me, you know, talk about, you know, the, the process of science... This is a great example of how mm -hmm. science works mm -hmm. um, and how science advances and how, in the end, it can impact not just academia, but also industry, government, and eventually the public and society as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so because you have a PhD in functional genomics, but you also have the Master in Business Administration, I MBA. Do. Yeah. So... Will you recommend, you know, PhD graduates <clears throat> to have uh, this combination of the business part of training? Oh, that's a very interesting uh, question. So, so I have, I think, four different credit degrees. Master's in engineering, uh -huh. like the hardcore right. yeah, even more. Yeah, math, engineer. heavy science, right? right? And I have like a master's of science, in yeah. science and biotechnology, right? That's like the cool stuff. Right. And a PhD in genetics, right. genomics, whatever. Um, and then an MBA. And yeah. And so that's what I like about degrees, is that all degrees are great. All if you plus learn potentially correctly. think, yeah, you, are, you already got all so of them. So they're all fantastic. And I don't even know if I'm <laughs> done. Time will tell, right? I love to learn. I love to, you know, learn about new things. So but what's interesting, and I love my PhD, right? Like PhD got me to where I am. There's no doubt. But when you look at degrees in science, oftentimes you come in as a decent scientist, and you come out as a better scientist, but the incremental value of going through that degree is only so much. Mm. Now, for the PhD, it's the most unquestionably. But, you know, before I did my PhD, I already had a couple of masters. I was a decent scientist. And after I did my PhD, I was a better scientist. I knew more. But the PhD didn't make me a great scientist. I was that before. Maybe you better. Um, and, and PhDs don't always make great scientists. I know plenty of PhDs who are not so fantastic scientists. And I also know many fantastic scientists that don't have PhDs. So there's the correlation there, but it's not, you know, the, the R square is not, is not one for sure. Right? <laughs> now, what was interesting about going to business school is that the, the value of the MBA was orders of magnitude when you compare the after to the before. And for me, I wasn't a businessman before like I went to business school, I had worked in the industry for years. I understood, you know, business processes. I understood decision making. Um, but after my MBA, my level of understanding, of awareness, of managerial skills and leadership skills and negotiation skills and financials and economy and risk management and hedging and marketing and sales and pricing, mm. the before and after is orders of magnitude difference. So, so in many ways, I encourage all scientists, you know, to do scientific education. But if you really want to learn the business, you can learn without going to school. You start your no own doubt. business. No doubt. And that's why people don't need to go to business school when they're very good <laughs> entrepreneurs because they always have that hat. They already have that hat. <laughs> but actually, for scientists to try to understand the business, the most enjoyable accelerated and productive way to learn is actually to go to business school. And, it's and not. Doing it, it is. It, to it go is. To business school. No, because, because if you go to a good business school, they have cohort-locked-in systems 
where you spend time mm -hmm. with people who have experience in the business mm -hmm. world. That's what I did at the University of Wisconsin, a fantastic school. But do they only kind of pick the ones with some industry experience? So, yeah, so it depends what program you take, what school you go to. So I had the great luxury of going to great, great, you know... For a lot of nerdy of people there in For a lot of high achievers that well, were doing their MBA, you know, weekends and nights, mm -hmm. who had been in the industry for decades. I mean, we had, you know, CEOs and VPs and people who had had very successful careers, but who needed the MBA to get mm -hmm. to the next stage, mm -hmm. or who mm -hmm. needed to put it all together. Mm -hmm. So because I had been in the industry for a few years, and I had PhDs and gone to grad school many times, um, you know, they, they let me in, quote-unquote. Um, and that was a fantastic learning experience I because I, I now understand how those people think because I'm one of them. Uh, I understand what they care about because now I care about those things. And, and, and you put it all together from an academic standpoint. And it doesn't mean you have to go to business school to learn those things. It just means that if, if you're a good learner and you go to school to learn this, uh -huh. you're going to learn a lot of things uh -huh. from tremendous, insightful, educated, experienced people within two years. I see. And that was, that was, I mean, if you look around here, and it doesn't go for radio, but, you know, in my academic office, the only things you see is my MBA material. Oh, all those binders. All those binders are my <laughs> business school binders. There's no book. There's no scientific book. There's a few, you know, masters and thesis dissertations mm -hmm. here, right? But the most valuable things that I use on a regular basis is the binders I got out of business school. And so I that, go back to those help. all the time. Oh, that definitely helps you to know how to run the lab. So it helps me be a better a administrator, lab. better decision <laughs> right. maker, right? right? B better manager of finances. Um, and, you know, game theory I learned in business school. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how to manage conflicts I learned yeah. in business school. How to negotiate I learned in business so school. Do you think that experience also improve your soft skills? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the other, the only other book like problem there, solving, yeah. right? It's like you know, like strength finder. Uh. So you know, finding strengths that you have and that other people have, and how to uh -huh. pull the team together and uh -huh. operate a team and manage a team. Wow. You know, storming, forming, <laughs> forming, and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, that that is what it's all about. Um, and those soft skills, yeah, I've acquired through school, but also through work in the industry. Mm. I think easier and faster than I would have learned in academia. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's helping me be a more successful faculty member for mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. because I have seen those issues, I have managed those problems firsthand mm -hmm. and when I have to teach the next generation of scientists of how to operate in the industry, I feel very prepared mm -hmm. and knowledgeable of those problems. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so, yes. So look at all the Nobel Prize winners. I, I don't think there are that many... Uh, Winners with a MBA and PhD uh, education on there. Probably not. So no. if there's the possibility that you will be a Nobel Prize winner, who you knows? Be I think, the first one. Yeah, I don't know about the first one. I'm sure there's people <laughs> like that before. Uh, I think this is one of those processes that's very hard to predict. Uh -huh. It's impossible to predict. Uh, and you know, there's many prizes. You know, the Nobel arguably being the most visible and the most popular. Uh, for sure, you know, the questions of scientists and the minds of scientists. Right. But the most important thing is your contribution to the science. Yeah, but in the end, you know, you don't do science to get a prize recognition down the line. I mean, it's just not how science works, right? You do your science, keep your head down, 
you push through, you get off road occasionally, and you know back in the guardrails, and then you hope to make an impact, mm-hmm. a difference, mm-hmm. a contribution, whether it's revolutionary, whether it's relevant, whether it's applicable. Oftentimes, it's for other people to figure out. So you know, if you look at CRISPR in general, you know, between the science, the early discoveries of the immune system that Philippe and I did, or whether you look at transferring that into a technology, the single guide technology from Jennifer Doudna, or if you look at the application to do genome editing in humans from Feng Zhang and George Church, I mean, I think you know it's hard to tell you know which contribution was the biggest mm-hmm. or the best or the most significant, or the most worthy of a Nobel Prize or other prizes, that's for other people to decide and, and rule on and manage um, and, and bestow you know, credit on different groups of people. And this is what's so interesting about science, is people will debate that. Yeah. Well, yes. early discoveries are great. Yes. Or you know, the transformative element was turning that into a technology. Yes. Or the real impact is like you know, curing you know, changing and altering and editing sequences in humans. So, you know, I think we'll see. I'm not mm-hmm. so worried about it. Okay. I'm curious, obviously, like many other people are. Yeah. But I think, you know, you can't worry about that. This is not, you know, this right. is not what I did the science 10 years ago. You know, we didn't even know we'd get a paper out of it. We didn't even know we'd get anything out of it. We didn't even know we'd get a patent or a science paper hmm. or any result out of that. Right. And that was Most what was so exciting. Yeah. Keep your head down and do. The yeah, science. I think I think that's some of the best advice I've ever heard. My my friend uh, Jill Benfield, you know, said that you know you got to you got to stick to what you do best, and not worry about the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's for other people to figure out anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and some people do a great job at this. Some people do you know a decent job at this. Um, and um, and this is what science is all about. You know, it's also imperfect sometimes. You know, sometimes things work, sometimes things don't work out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's fair, sometimes it's not. We see that with intellectual property and companies and you know, rules and regulations or limitations or guardrails coming in preventing people from doing certain things. We see that in grants all the time. I've mm-hmm. seen so many of my CRISPR colleagues have great ideas that were there before their time. People like Jill Benfield, people like Eric Sontheimer, Luciano Marafini, you know, who were there and visionary, but they were there almost too early mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they saw the future before the future happened and other people who had to rule and assess their job and their proposal and their grants were like, this stuff is never going to work or yeah, hell no. I, and in the end, you know, they were right. So they have some satisfaction, I think, in knowing or seeing it before other people, but it's also tremendous frustration because... You know, they're, they're too too early. They're so yeah. far out on the road. I think the timing road. is very critical. And the timing and the serendipitous a, part of timing. A story I heard was this one scientist had this idea of internet searching. He, he thought it would be super great, but that was back in 90, 1990s. And no company would have an interest in there. Hmm. And they said, nobody will ever search in the internet. But now you look at Google, yeah. and you can get so many applications out of that. I, I've heard a number of times in my early. early days of career, nobody cares about CRISPR. <laughs> I've heard that many times. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, it's ironic. So people actually start work on this early work from 1980s. 1987. Yeah, 1987. Yeah, first paper right. uh, on, on CRISPR like sequences, it was mm-hmm. called CRISPR at the time, it hadn't mm-hmm. been baptized until 2002, 
but you know people observe those things and but nobody care mm-hmm. and then late 90s early 2000 people sequenced a bunch of genomes and they saw them over and over and over again repeatedly you know pun intended um, and then eventually you know it came back around you know, 2005 so it took like almost 20 years yes for people to go from you know the first observation randomly and expectably nobody cared about to like there's something there yes. people should look at that yes. and again that's how science works right. it's a nice radio process unpredictable process time-consuming process frustrating process um, but it's also so, exciting yeah you know? well so let's talk about some fun stuff um, do you have any like a traditional culture culture in your lab for your lab members to do yeah so we do we do fun. things a little bit of a different way so every year we do a retreat a right? retreat so like we take yeah. a day or two and do you know, some we talk about science uh, sports we do or... like some like team building exercises right? oh yeah so I do things like binding people together with tape oh game and then they Kinda have like to like compete games? and race uh-huh. and work together you blindfold them and oh I you see tell them to do certain yeah. things and yeah. learn how to communicate yeah uh, actually, that's something I took from the industry. It's something I used to do at DuPont. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was a lot of fun for those teams to do. And then, and then I took that with me when I came to NC State. Yeah. And I took that with my lab and my students. That's a lot of fun. Um, but I think we also have fun in the lab. Like you don't have to go out of the lab to have fun. I mean, that's why people are scientists, right? People always, always try to, to, to uh, help people make good decisions when they talk about professional development, what career they're going to do, what job they're going to have. So you're not a, a serious with like, a front face walking through the lab. Sometimes I'm serious. No, 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 no. I can't do that. <laughs> this is like so 1980s. It doesn't work anymore. Uh, um, so you know you have to have fun because scientists are there to have fun. And do you text our students? Uh, very rarely. I'm not a big texter. Yeah. But you know we have an Instagram account. Oh yeah. We have a Twitter account. Yeah, you know, I know. I follow Twitter you. Twitter in chief. Yes. So we tweet, we have a website, we have an Instagram, yeah. we have all that stuff. Uh, Do you have assigned a social media editor? We have, yes. <laughs> so we have, so I have a, a Twitter-in-chief. Actually, Courtney, the lady you just met when we had coffee. Uh, yeah, yeah. So she's my Twitter-in-chief. And then I have a website mm-hmm. task force, mm-hmm. what I infamously call the WTF. Uh, so I have a whole team there that manages our internet content and yeah. our website yeah. and our accounts and images and pictures and yeah. all that stuff. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you were saying how the world changes, right? New yeah. technologies, you know, this. Yeah. So students who want to come in and join the lab, they want to take out pictures. Do we have an Instagram account? Do we tweet? Do people retweet? Do we have followers and all that stuff? I mean, I don't know how much of a difference it makes or not. But according to the students, it's important. And yeah. So we do it. That's the way they communicate. That's the way they communicate. And yeah. Then, you know, like you so, know, hate it. It's just a reality. Last last question. If you can recommend a book for, in general, for science or anything for fun, what <laughs> book will you recommend? Bargaining for Advantage. Bargaining? Bargaining for, for advantage. advantage. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It's a negotiation book. From when? Like from a business school. Ago? From business from school. Yeah, it's from the 2000s. 2000s. Maybe even 20 teens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, bargaining for advantage. Uh, when people get ready to get a job. Maybe when people get ready to get married, they should read that stuff. Before they get because married? Everything is a negotiation. <laughs> Before they have kids, Love for sure. Love is negotiation. Before they have kids, for sure. You know, working together is negotiation. It's a bargain every time. 
<laughs> and, uh, and my kids are master negotiators. My wife's a master negotiator. We've made monsters. That's probably why uh, I you love married that her. Yeah, that's why I married her. She's a master negotiator. And, uh, and I think that's a great book that I recommend a lot of people to read. Cool. Because you learn to bargain, you learn to negotiate. Everybody thinks they're a master negotiator until they actually meet somebody who negotiates, who's taking a negotiation class. Mm-hmm. That was my, one of my favorite classes in the MBA was learning how to negotiate, and that was fantastic. So, bargaining for advantage. I see. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brango. I really appreciate your time and your energy and your knowledge um, for, for our podcast. So, I wish all the best for your future research and program, your companies and entrepreneur um, effort. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and support us on Patreon.com. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode of Nature and Nurture.